0: You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, Aaron's here. I'm here. Uh, That's it. No guests today. Tommy will be in tomorrow. Um, We got a lot uh, to get to. The Super Bowl is set. The team that runs the ball and plays defense in the 49ers against the team that has the best quarterback, if not the best player right now on the planet earth oh my god patrick mahomes yesterday um he was sensational he's been sensational in, in these two playoff games and really these first two seasons of him starting have been spectacular do you remember at the in the very early days of the podcast which is now you know just a year and a half old but in the early days when Patrick Mahomes started off 2018 you know he threw for like six touchdowns in the second week and people were already saying this is the greatest quarterback I've ever seen and I just said you know pump the brakes come on he's not in the hall of fame quite yet he's good but I really said, let, let's see what happens over the course of an entire season. He's ridiculous. <laughs> he He's just a massive, you know, um, he's an eraser of everything that goes wrong in a game. He can erase it all against a good defensive team, a bad, you know, uh, a great defensive team. And he played a good defensive team yesterday, and he's got a great defensive team he'll face in the Super Bowl, he was spectacular.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's the guy that you're never comfortable facing. There's no point in that game, even when the Titans went up,
0: and even the week before. Go ahead, tell everybody what you did.
1: Hey, I I, <laughs> I bet the Chiefs got they got down to minus two and a half live and at I seventeen
0: them, seven. Was it minus I, two I'm and a half? I'm pretty sure it was seventeen seven. It was what, minus two and a half. And, what, what, what was the money? What was the uh, the price of that of the minus two and a half in game? Was it minus one twenty?
1: Yeah, minus one twenty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I bought it. But again, it's just. Doesn't matter what the score is, you never feel like you're out of it if you're on that side with Patrick Mahomes.
0: Yeah, you don't. I mean, that's the thing. Like most teams, third and fourteen is check down and punt it. Third and fourteen with him is look out; they're throwing the ball way downfield. One thing seems obvious about this Super Bowl this this is a very good matchup. Game open, pick them. It's a KC minus one, minus one and a half now, depending on where you're looking. Um, Two excellent teams. Two contrast in styles, you know. You've got storylines all over the place. You've got Kansas City in the Super Bowl for the first time in fifty years. I mean, how many times are we going to see Hank Stram's, you know, sixty-five toss power trap NFL film stuff from Super Bowl four? Or come on, boys, let's matriculate the ball down the field, boys. We're going to be getting that in the week leading up to Super Bowl uh, fifty-four. Andy Reid, a Hall of Fame career without a Super Bowl, trying to get his first. You know, San Francisco looking for its first Super Bowl win in 25 years with the son of a two-time Super Bowl winner, Mike Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan, the son, has led the team to a Super Bowl. Kansas City, a one-point favorite. A great quarterback is essentially the reason they are a one-point favorite in this game. It's like, it's a great quarterback as a slight favorite over perhaps a better overall team. I'm looking forward to this Super Bowl. You know, this is the first Super Bowl in seven years without either Tom Brady or Peyton Manning as a quarterback. You know, if you go, if you go in order, so there's sort of a new blood feel to this game, um, which I like. The last six Super Bowls, the AFC representatives, in order, Denver, New England, Denver, New England, New England, New England. So for the last six until this year, we had either Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. As a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl, you won't have that this time. It's Kansas City in the AFC. The NFC, you know, it's been much different. San Francisco is going to be the fifth different team in five years to make the Super Bowl. And the fourth NFC team in the last five years to make the super bowl following a losing season or a 500 season the year before they made it. The 49ers were 4 and 12 last year. The Eagles were 7 and 9 the year before they won it. The Panthers were 7-8 and 1 the year before they got to it. Um and the Falcons the year they got to it and lost were 8 and eight. So it's been sort of an NFC trend to jump from not very good to really good to like, you know, NFC championship good. And I know that that provides a lot of hope for Redskin fans. And we'll have a lot of uh, opportunity to talk about that over the next two weeks. This Super Bowl also continues a trend um, that says you better be a top two seed and have that first round bye to make it. It's seven straight years now of the Super Bowl featuring a top-two seed from each conference. The last team not to have wildcard weekend as a bye and to make it the 2012 Ravens who won it. So the Super Bowl really has represented, uh, uh, during a seven-year stretch, the best of the regular season. You know, the first weekend bye and obviously home field advantage in at least one of the two games is once again, you know, seems to be crucial. Until it won't be anymore, because I went back and in looking up all this, I found that you know, the last seven years you had to be a top two seed to make the Super Bowl, but the three years before that, we basically had three years in a row of the team winning it all playing on wildcard weekend. Um, I will get to um, sort of game take, uh, abbreviated versions of each of the game takes here in a few minutes, but I wanted to get to this because <clears throat> there was a lot of conversation on Twitter yesterday about um about nepotism you know it's been uh one of those things sort of attached to kyle shanahan for many many years here when he was here in 2010 2011 2012 and 2013 i mean many of you admit it uh, you know w- regardless of what you see now in the last couple of years admit it you thought the only reason he had the job was because his father's name was mike shanahan and he was the head coach. So many of you, I remember those days and I would fight it internally with guys at the station saying, are you guys out of your mind? This guy's a proven a proven offensive coordinator and offensive mind and coach. You know, and people would say, come on, man. This dude, he's he's here because his father's Mike. Um I looked up the definition of nepotism uh, last night. I'll read it uh, to you. It's the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives or friends. I thought it was just relatives, actually, or friends, especially by giving them jobs. So using it in a sentence accurately um, when applied to Kyle Shanahan, um, I would I would write the sentence as, fo- as follows. Kyle Shanahan got his first opportunities as a coach primarily because of his father, Mike Shanahan's longtime success as an NFL head coach, a career that includes two Super Bowl championships. Of course, I threw in the Mike stuff just because I like Mike. Used in a a sentence inaccurately, Kyle Shanahan was hired by his father in Washington to be the offensive coordinator because he was the head coach's son. That's just not true. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. He's not a Super Bowl participating head coach because of his father. Okay. Nepotism. It's, it's amazing that word, it's a word that implies more often than not something very negative or at least something worthy of an eye roll. You know, we, we see that all the time. It happens in all walks of life. Kids get more playing time in youth sports than they should very often because their father or mother is the coach you know, or an older brother, kids, brothers, sisters, daughters getting jobs they don't deserve because dad or mom or older brother or older sister is in a position to provide an opportunity for a loved one that really hasn't been earned yet. We see that happen all the time. Happens in business all the time, more than in sports, really more than in entertainment, where a certain level of talent is pretty much imperative or it becomes too obvious that the person hired because of nepotism didn't deserve it. You can hide someone in a company and give them a good salary if they're not producing much because dad owns the company. It's really hard for a professional coach to put his son on a, on an NFL roster and pay him if the kid actually can't do it. You see my point, there is a different thing. You know, in a business owned by dad or mom, or in a company where the dad is the president or CEO or the mom is, much easier to hide somebody and give them an opportunity that they haven't earned and that they don't continue to earn by you know through production. But when you're in a position in pro sports or entertainment, really hard to kind of hide that. Yesterday, Joe Buck was calling the NFC Championship game because he's really good at what he does. He got that way on his own, but he got that way also with the help of his father, the legendary Jack Buck, who took Joe everywhere he went professionally. If you've ever read the story of the Bucks, everywhere old, uh, old man Jack Buck went, he took his son. Games, son would be in the booth, son had a lot of access as a kid. It wore off, clearly. Not Joe's fault. I mean, what a great childhood. Joe may have gotten his first job with the help from his dad or because of who his dad was, but he's not the number one Fox play-by-play guy because his dad's name is Jack Buck. Okay. Joe Buck isn't in the position he's in now because of nepotism. He may have been given a chance at 22 years old, with the Louisville Redbirds, which was a minor league affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals, where his dad was doing games forever. But he's not the number one NFL play-by-play guy on Fox because of his father's influence over Joe's employers. It was probably more of a jeans thing with Joe and Jack Buck. Joe had the chops, as it turned out. In sports, many great players are children of great players, you know, or former players. You don't think Steph Curry got the best coaching, the best AAU team opportunities in part because he was Del Curry's son? How about Clay Thompson or Austin Rivers or Barry Bonds? You know, but ultimately in sports, you gotta have the talent, you gotta have the goods for the most part, on your own, or it's completely exposes everybody. Kyle Shanahan started as a UCLA grad assistant. Maybe Mike made the call. He then got an offensive QC job, quality coach uh, job, in Tampa. Maybe Mike made a call to John Gruden. You know, I'm not going to suggest that that isn't a possibility. But after that, after those opportunities, perhaps created because of nepotism, the rest he had to prove. In Houston, from 2006 to 2009, working for Gary Kubiak, which, which you know, Gary's almost like a, a family member to the Shanahan's, Uh, You could almost say that Gary Kubiak gave uh, Kyle Shanahan his opportunity because of nepotism. But he was was a wide receiver coach. He was a quarterback's coach. He was an offensive coordinator for two years. You know, Mike's told this story before. Um, Mike could have hired him in Denver when Mike was hiring Denver. Didn't want to. Told him that they should not work together until Kyle had proved himself on his own. Um, and that, you know, if they were to work together, that it was, cle- it was, it would be obvious that it was based on merit. Um, Mike needed Kyle more than Kyle needed Mike in Washington. You know, Mike, Mike told, has told the story that he wasn't going hire, to hire Kyle or consider working with Kyle and, until Kyle had produced a top five offense, which, by the way, Kyle did twice in Houston as the offensive coordinator. They were the third-ranked offense in 2008, with Matt Schaub primarily a quarterback, and the number four offense in the NFL in 2009. Um, one, of the, um, one of the quarterbacks that was on that Houston roster and actually got some starts, I think, when Schaub was hurt, was Sage Rosenfels, who was actually drafted by the Redskins and Marty Schottenheimer in 2001. Um, Sage Rosenfels um, was asked um, recently about um, the, fir- the the year that he got to Houston when Shanahan was the receiver's coach. Um, Houston's head coach at the time was Gary Kubiak, and S- uh, Rosenfels tells the story. He said, he, he, I get there, and it's like Kyle Shanahan's here, and he goes, I was thinking to myself, all right, here we go. We've got a Kubiak hiring Mike Shanahan's son. We know how this is going to go. And then Rosenfels said, after being in the same room with him multiple times, He was completely blown away. Quote, I learned the most football from him that year and the following year when Shanahan became the offensive coordinator than I learned from anybody at any point in my career. Rosenfels played for six teams over a nine-year career. That 2007 year, I knew he was the real deal. That's when he was a quarterback's coach. He was not the OC in 2007. He became the OC in 2008, 2009. Quote, somehow he made me... A decent NFL quarterback. I never had as much success or understood the game as well before or since. That was all him. He related to players so well, whether it was Andre Johnson um, you know, or Kevin Walters, the wide receivers, or the quarterbacks. He really had an ability to relate to players and was very likable. More than anything, though, he knew how to dissect the defense and how to adjust. He knew exactly what to do if the defense did X. Um, he would do Y, close quote. Um, that from Sage Rosenfels. So I guess the purpose of this is just to say, if you actually really are going to get into this nepotism debate, know what you're talking about. Nepotism probably benefited someone like Kyle Shanahan early in his career. You know, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, being Mike Shanahan's son, first of all, just being around Mike, like Joe Buck, Um, Kyle has talked about how he was always around Mike's teams in Denver in particular. You know, he was at training camp every year. And being a part of that and being around it clearly wore off. Obviously, he was bright and he was interested. You know, all of us who are fathers with sons, daughters, etc., you know um, that when the kid isn't interested, you cannot force the success you cannot force that child to end up loving the same things you love. It's, it's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and preach, but I just always thought it was a mistake. I've made a lot of mistakes as a parent. I remember one thing when it came to sports because of my love for sports. I made it a point. If my son, and I have three boys, doesn't love sports, that's fine. If he's not a good athlete, that's fine. You know, And they've got, one thing I remember is if you love something, you'll end up probably being much better at that than you will something that you don't love doing. Kyle obviously was around his father and loved what his father did, and so he soaked it all up. And he deserves to be here. And he may have gotten here even without his father's, uh, without Mike Shanahan being his father, if he had been introduced to football in any other way, because he's extremely bright. Um, and man, what a hell of, what a hell of a head coach he's turned in, uh, to here, uh, in San Francisco, you know, with respect to the Washington thing, it's just always been frustrating to me as a Redskins fan to know that we had all of this talent under one roof. And it was really one of the only, I mean, we had it with Marty. When he was here, you know, Joe to a certain extent. But, you know, in 2010, coming off two of the real rock bottom moments, certainly 2009 was a rock bottom moment. You had a two time Super Bowl winning uh, coach, and you had a lot of talent in the building. Um, you had potentially a run of, you know, Mike Shanahan fil- followed by Kyle Shanahan. I know what Mike's record was it was 24 and 40. Okay. I know what his record was. A lot of reasons for that. A lot of reasons. And Mike didn't do his part when it came to he was given the authority, but he didn't exercise it in the same way that, say, Marty did. Marty left. Marty said, nope, it's going to work this way or I'm out of here. I know you're not having fun. That was sort of the point, Marty said to Dan and the other owners. Part of the problem was you. I recognize that I asked for total control. If you're going to take it away from me, I'm leaving. And I think Mike probably, in hindsight, could have you know, stood up a little bit more and said, Nope, it's either him or me right now before the 2013 season. The all in for week one was a sabotage season, courtesy of the owner and the quarterback and his part in it, the head coach, for not exerting the authority that he was supposedly given to say, We're doing it my way or I'm out of here. You know, we read the stories about after the Seattle game um, and some of the stuff that was going on then, he almost packed up his bags and left then, but it didn't happen. What makes me upset as a Redskin fan is to think that, you know, the combination, and I've said this many times, arrogance, not that bright, and boy, pettiness and insecurity. That kind of culture that has really... Um, you know, the the organization has, has been soaked in for so long, has really kept it more than anything else from thriving, you know, and being successful. Hopefully this is a new day with Ron Rivera and hopefully Ron Rivera realizes what's gone wrong in the past with other quality people who have been here and he's able to change it. Or maybe the owner will change it himself because he's so desperate. Um, I'm happy for Kyle. I don't know Kyle. I know Mike much better. I got to know Mike when he was here. And I've had conversations with Kyle. You know, not many. Had him on the air a couple of times. Have had another conversation. I can tell you this, that Mike w- was less confrontational than his own son. Um, and uh, and his son, and Mike always said this, is a better coach than he w- w- was ever going to think about being. He felt that way from the get-go. I remember him saying very early on, Kyle's going to be a much better head coach than I was. Um, anyway, by the way, that kind of, you know, it's his son, of course, and you, you root for that. But to, to have the ability to say that, to be secure enough to say that, we need more of that uh, out in Ashburn now. Anyway, uh, let's get to the game takes. Pay attention, here's Kevin's Game day. Now right, let's start with the, the first game, um, which Aaron in-gamed uh, Kansas City minus two and a half when they were down 17-7. And uh, that was a winner. Nice job uh, out of you. Uh, well done. Um, I So it's it's really hard. Let me, let me begin with this. After last week and now after yesterday, it's really hard to even envision Kansas City being slowed down offensively. Like, you're a football fan, you watch a lot of games, you've watched the Chiefs, you know, score 41 unanswered against the, um, against the Texans, and then yesterday down 17-7, you know, run off a 28-7 stretch of football and it just seems like with Mahomes and their weapons that they're unstoppable. And it's one of those things you got to think about as we as we get to the to Super Bowl weekend, 2 weeks from now or a little bit less than 2 weeks from now. I mean, that great defense against that offense that really can you see them being slowed down? Can you see them being stopped? It's hard to it's hard to imagine that. In this game yesterday, there were a couple of things. First of all, you know, I would not have in-gamed Kansas City at 17-7, to so good for you. I mean, the smell test was 0-3. <laughs> worst, this will be the worst year of the smell test in the 14 years that I've been doing it. I will now have, to my record, 10 winning seasons, 4 losing seasons. But the 3 losing seasons prior to this one were really close to like 50%. Just barely losing seasons, you know, minus two or three units. I'm now down nine units. I'm nine units below 500 um, after being up 26. It's crazy. Uh, anyway, um, the reason I wouldn't have done it is because Tennessee was moving the ball pretty easily. You know, their first three drives were, you know, eight plays, 58 yards, field goal, three nothing, nine plays, 58 yards, touchdown, they're up 10 nothing. 15 plays, 75 yards, 9 minutes and 7 seconds. And if you were watching in D.C. with a lot of audio interruptions on CBS, uh, you told me, Aaron, this morning that that was a WUSA Channel 9 thing, that people were not experiencing that nationally. Yeah. Um, It was a little bit frustrating. But anyway, um, and at that point, they've got a 17-7 lead. All right, after that 15-play drive. And that drive ends with six just over 6 minutes to go in the first half. What's amazing about that first half, okay, is that Tennessee scores, they have, they have the ball four times. They score on the first three drives. The fourth the fourth drive they ended up punting on. They punted once. They had no turnovers and they're down 21 to 17 with 19 minutes and 8 seconds time of possession. It couldn't have gone any better. The first half for them. They possessed the ball. They scored when they had it. They didn't give Mahomes many opportunities. And yet they're still down 21-17 at the half. In part because Mahomes made a phenomenal run for a touchdown. A second and 10. First of all, let me just mention this. That was a clock management error there by Andy Reid in that final minute of the first half. He had all of his timeouts left, or at least two. Two or three timeouts left. And on one of the plays, um, I think it was the throw to Watkins, best basically let 25 seconds roll off before they got their next, next snap. You know, they could have used that because if Mahomes gets tackled there, you know, even if it's down at the two or three yard line where there were more missed tackles, there was a hesitation pull up when he was tight roping the sideline thinking he would go out of bounds. And that, by the way, is a total result of just the rules now where you can't hit the quarterback because I thought that he was gettable at that point. But if he goes down, say, at the two-yard line, three-yard line, they get him down there, they're only going to have 11 seconds left. You know, that's an opportunity for Tennessee. They should have had at that point every bit of 30 seconds left had Andy Reid managed the clock well. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He makes one of the great runs by a quarterback for a touchdown you'll ever see. And that was the game there. That was really the game. Because Tennessee... Needed at least in in the moment you're thinking Kansas City is going to get the ball to start the second half. They're up four now. They're going to go up eleven. They didn't, but you really, if you were Tennessee, needed to hold them to um, to a field goal in that particular spot to go in seventeen seventeen at the half. Um, that was uh, that was unfortunate, and it was twenty one seventeen. But so anyway, netting it out. Derrick Henry, for all of the talk after the game about how Henry was shut down um, and how Henry wasn't the factor everybody thought he would be. You know, at halftime, he's sitting there, 10 carries, 62 yards. He's averaging 6.2 yards per carry. And it's 21-17, and they've only punted once in the game. Like, if you're Tennessee, you're going into that game thinking, you know, we can't punt more than three times in the game. We only punted once in the first half. Derrick Henry's got 6.2 yards per carry. And Tannehill's throwing the ball well, you know he's eleven of seventeen for one hundred and twenty yards. So you're playing well. You have you've got, you've done you've executed the game plan to a T to pull the upset at Arrowhead, and you're still down 21-17, which is really it's going to get to when we get in the con- get into the conversation about the Super Bowl. It's what scares you is that. You can execute the perfect game plan if you're a running football team like Tennessee, and you can possess the the ball for at a, a two to one ratio, and still get beat. Um, it was the second half in which I thought that Tennessee, Arthur Smith, the offensive coordinator, Vrabel, I thought that they panicked a little bit. They got a stop on Kansas City's first drive. Kansas City had a had a pretty good drive going. And then there was a – they got a stop and they got a punt. And so Tennessee did get the ball back in the third quarter down by four with a chance to take the lead, to get get it back into it, the kind of game it had to be, which is we need to score and then even if they score, we get it back with a chance to take the lead. Um And in that particular drive, they moved the ball. They were moving the ball. And it was a penalty that really derailed it. Now, it was a third-and-one stop on Henry against a goal-line defense. I don't know if you heard Romo say this. So Tennessee's first drive of the second half, they're driving it. And they've picked up. They've already made two first downs, I think, at that point on the drive. Um, And it's third-and-one from their own 41-yard line. They had made one first down, excuse me. Uh, And Derrick Henry against goal line defense. And when I say goal line defense, that means 11 people at the line of scrimmage. They had 11 people at the line of scrimmage on that play. Go back and watch that play. There's no safety. It's everybody at the line of scrimmage with, you know, trying to stop a third and one because they knew they were going to run the ball. And they did. And they stopped him. Now, there was a holding penalty against Tennessee. Very interesting decision there for Andy Reid. Does he take the penalty and give him another down? Or does he decline the penalty and allow Tennessee potentially at that point from their own 41-yard line to go for it? They may have. In fact, given what we know about Kansas City offensively, it's almost a half to go for it. And it would have been third and a little bit less than one. Reed took the penalty. I think it was the right thing to do. And so then they had a third and 11, and that was the play Tannehill scrambled and got absolutely crunched by Sorensen. And they punted it back again. And this is where I think the game got a little bit away from Tennessee. First of all, Kansas City um, converts a couple of, of third downs on the drive. Um, and then and they score. They end up scoring to take a 28-17 lead. And they took the rest of the quarter, the rest of the third quarter on that drive into the fourth quarter is when they scored the touchdown. and it's 28-17. So Tennessee is now going to touch the ball Aaron for just the second time in the second half and it's already the fourth quarter. Think about that for a moment. I was thinking about this. I always do for, for some reason. The college game last week, in the first quarter of the game, Clemson uh, had five possessions. LSU had four. It was whatever. There were nine possessions. And the game was 7-7 at the end of the first quarter. It's not like people were just punting. In an NFL game in the second half, Tennessee didn't even touch the ball for the second time until the fourth quarter. And at that point is where they decided Derrick Henry is not going to be a part of this game anymore. You know, I, I thought it was wrong. He had 10 carries, 62 yards, 6.2 yards per carry. You needed to get your defense off the field after that long uh, – keep the defense off the field for a while, and they went Tannehill pass to, to Corey Davis, which was a big play for 15 yards. And then it was Tannehill to Derrick Henry on sort of a panic checkdown. down. Tannehill to A.J. Brown. Tannehill sacked. Punt. So that was not good. Um, that was – Giving up on the run, they didn't run the ball once on that particular drive, and I thought that that was uh, not a point, and uh, not a point in the game early in the fourth quarter where you had to become unbalanced, and that was it basically for Derrick Henry. I mean, he had a you know I think he had another carry maybe in the game. Actually, he may not have had another carry after that. Uh, not one more carry for Derrick Henry after that. Ten carries, sixty-two yards. Okay. In the first half. And then on that first drive of the third quarter, he got it once, twice, three times, four, five, six times. How did he end up with 19 carries then? It says 19 carries, six. He must have had a couple of other carries in the second half. Anyway, um, I, I digress. Uh, first half, perfect game plan. Second half, got away from the game plan when it became a two-score game. And then when it became a three-score game, they did fake that punt, which is beautiful. I, You know, th- but th- that's an uh, an indication uh, just uh, by chance of a coach who does not believe in his quarterback's ability um, on his own to pick up a, a, a fourth down conversion. He goes with the punter on a fake punt on fourth and eight from their own 22-yard line. Like... Not only does he go for a fake punt, he goes for a fake punt in an obvious fake punt situation. He had more confidence in the fake punt play than he did in Tannehill in converting a fourth and eight. Tannehill's perfect in good down and distance. Obviously, you force him to throw, it's going to be a problem. Uh, 35-24, the final in that game. Mahomes throws for three, runs for another. He ends up becoming the first quarterback in NFL history in the postseason to lead his team twice in two games to the Super Bowl in rushing. Uh, eight carries, 53 yards, and that's really part of his greatness, is he's such an effortless runner. You know, it's always last resort, but it's usually the right thing to do. One of the things that was pointed out by Romo, and Clinton Portis talked about it with me this morning on the radio show, is that it's really hard to confuse Mahomes, but when you do with Man zone that looks like man pre snap or vice versa. He doesn't force it. He recognizes it post snap and then he uses his legs to hurt you with a run or an extension of the play. I don't know really other than Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, You know, people point out Staubach and Tarkington from way back. I know there are others. There's something about Mahomes because of the combination of his elusiveness and his arm strength that may separate him from everybody else he is an eraser of bad situations he takes a pass rush and he eludes it and then he keeps extending the play and when you have Tyreek Hill and you have Travis Kelsey and Watkins and Hardman etc somebody's going to be open and he's going to have the arm strength to get it to you the second game yesterday featured one of the most dominant one-sided beatdown halves I've ever seen in a big game. We talked about it on Friday, Aaron, that you know, San Francisco as a healthy defense was just gonna be too much for Green Bay. Like that Sunday night game we watched, it's like what's changed? Nothing. Thirty-seven to eight. Rogers couldn't, you know, had no time. Had 75 yards passing into the fourth quarter, and yesterday in the second half it changed. But, but in the first half, first of all, Raheem Mostert in the first half, t- uh, 14 carries, 160 yards in a half. All right, Garoppolo only threw the ball six times in a half, eight for the game. Well, more on that coming up here shortly. Um, it was under siege for Green Bay. It was okay. We can't protect our guy. We have to throw screens to, it was the same thing. Remember I said last week about Minnesota, they're trying screens and it doesn't work against San Francisco. They react too quickly. They're too fast. Same thing yesterday. They're trying screens to get something going and they're getting nailed. Now, what did work for them in the first half, and I was surprised that they didn't do more of it, was Aaron Jones carried the ball nine times for 49 yards in the first half. A lot of those that yardage coming on sort of toss sweeps, you know, toss zone sweeps. That seemed to be an opportunity for them, but they got away from it a little bit. Now, it started to get stopped after a while, but he averaged 5.4 yards per carry, you know, on those nine carries. It looked like it was the only chance Green Bay had to move it. The problem, of course, is that when San Francisco had it, they possessed it. And they possessed it by just running the football and doing very little else. They ran the football down Green Bay's throat, start to finish. You know, the first drive of the game was a three-and-out punt for San Francisco. They get stopped on the third and one. It was the only good defensive play, essentially, all day by Green Bay. After that, it was touchdown, field goal, touchdown, field goal. And, and then after the interception, uh, right before the half, another touchdown. How about the first touchdown? It's third and eight against five, I think it was five DBs, I think it was nickel, may have been six. And Kyle says, no, we're going to run a sort of a draw, but a trap draw with Mostert, who takes it 36 yards for a score. Sometimes I don't think you see enough coaches willing to run the ball in third and seven, third and eight against a defense that is five, six DBs and everybody playing, you know, the sticks. I think sometimes you don't see enough coaches run the ball in that spot. They ran it for a touchdown. uh, Mostert was incredible. Second best day in NFL history, postseason history, the 220 yards um, in the game. Uh, Second only to Eric Dickerson's 248 yards. I'm pretty sure that came against the Cowboys in the mid-80s. I could be wrong. Uh, Mostert, 29 carries, 220 yards, average, 7.6 yards, and had four touchdowns, four on the day. And because they could not be stopped rushing the football, Jimmy Garoppolo had... One of the most incredible stat lines from a twenty first century quarterback I think I've ever seen. Six of eight was Jimmy Garoppolo for seventy-seven yards. Six of eight. That's ridiculous. That's Bob Greasy numbers from the nineteen seventies. It is uh it is quite rare to see what we've seen in this postseason, which is multiple quarterbacks winning games, throwing for less than 100 yards. That's pretty incredible uh, to see. Um, Miami uh, threw... It was the second fewest passes thrown in a playoff game. Miami threw six and seven passes um, following the 1973 playoffs. So you got to go back to the 1973 playoffs. That would not have been the year that they beat the Redskins. It was the '73 Super Bowl that they beat the Redskins. But if you go back to the 1973 season, all right, they um, in their playoff games on their way to another Super Bowl win over the Vikings, Bob Greasy. Here it is uh, in the two in the in the playoff. Here, hold on for one second. Against the Raiders in the AFC Championship game, Bob Greasy was three for six for 34 yards in the AFC title win over the Raiders. They beat the Raiders 27-10, to 10, and Bob Greasy was 3-for-6 as the starting quarterback for 34 yards. They rushed the ball um, in that game. Zonka had over 100, Mercury Morris had 86, and, uh, and Greasy himself had 39 yards rushing. Um, and then in the Super Bowl that year against Minnesota, Bob Greasy went... Uh, six for seven, 73 yards, and a Super Bowl win, a 24-7 to seven Super Bowl win over Miami. So the, the fewest yesterday since those two games by Bob Greasy uh, following the 73 uh, season. Jimmy Garoppolo's eight passes yesterday, the fewest since then. In, in, amazing in this day and age that that could happen, uh, but it did. Um, really impressed with the 49er run game, obviously. Really impressed with their speed on defense. Um, it just it, it leads to this this sort of thought about the Super Bowl, and that is th- this great defense and this great running game. It would seem to be what you would need to beat a Patrick Mahomes-led team, but at the same time, can you envision the Chiefs scoring less than 30 points against anybody right now? They've scored 86 in two weeks against decent – well, Houston, not a decent defensive team – Tennessee, not only a decent defensive team, a well-coached defensive team. Got plenty of time to make a pick on that game. Uh, You're going to want my pick because you'll want to go opposite (laughs) of it, more likely than not. If you do choose to go opposite uh, of my plays, Aaron, um, and you don't have a place to play, mybookie.ag. It is reliable. It's got fast payouts. They've got quality lines, many ways to bet. Um, again, and i 've mentioned this and several of you have tweeted me um, and even a couple of friends have reached out and have used it and it 's worked um, don 't expect to you know uh, g- make a deposit, get the credit which i 'll tell you about in a moment, and then take the money out the next day they 're not going to let you do that, but if you 're looking for a legitimate way to wager on sports and you don 't have a place, consider my bookie. AG. you got the Super Bowl coming up, but before then, lots of basketball, obviously, NBA college hoops. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot of college hoops bets, because Aaron and I bet a lot of college basketball. I do not really bet the NBA during the regular season. Never have. Not interested. I don't follow it enough during the regular season, night in and night out. And this year, man, I am off the NBA right now, in part because the Wizards stink. Um, but... Uh, if you're looking for a place to wager, um, my bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. If you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to a thousand dollars. That means if you deposit 2000, you'll get an extra thousand dollars in free money to play with. You need to use my promo code. And that promo code is Kevin DC. That'll activate the offer. All right. Uh, let's, uh, All right, let's get to some Redskins news uh, real quickly, and then we'll do some of the other things that happened uh, over the weekend. So, uh, if you missed this story, Ruben Foster, um, who had that injury back in May, torn ACL, Ian Rappaport reported that uh, not only did he have a torn ACL, he had a torn LCL and MCL as well. All right, so he did damage to that, and he had significant nerve damage to the knee, and it's just, it's strange, man. Just the, the Redskins and these injuries, like they just can't break a leg and have it heal properly. You know, they can't just have a torn ACL and have everything go the normal, you know, rehab route. There's always something else. And this this uh, nerve damage um, was reported yesterday by Ian, Ian Rappaport. It came from Foster's agent. Apparently Foster could not feel his toes for several months following the surgery and the injury. Um, but apparently, he now has that feeling back, and there's more optimism today than there was, say, a week or two ago. And there is some hope that Foster can participate in some form or fashion come training camp. No timetable for his return. I would just say this: it's. I'm not going to put it in the Alex Smith category, but I wouldn't count on Ruben Foster if I'm a Redskin fan in 2020. You know, he's a young guy, and I'm sure there's going to be an opportunity down the road. Um, but, you know, this is these these are injuries. When you hear nerve damage, um, that ends up being, you know, typically one of those things scary, you know, and can be career-threatening. We'll, we'll see. And I, 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 you know, wish him the best and, and hope that he's back. I don't even know what Ron Rivera's feeling about Reuben Foster would be in the first place. They're going to a 4-3. You know, Reuben Foster could fit in a couple of spots, including the middle. Um, right now, in terms of the players that you may have, Sean, Sean Dion Hamilton would be your middle linebacker if you had to start playing tomorrow, because John Bostic's not under contract. Although Bostic's really smart and is a bit of a team leader, and I think can play that middle linebacker spot. Um, there was also a story earlier this morning from J.P. Finley, who wrote a story on NBCSportsWashington.com. Uh, about scott turner and kevin o'connell and the whole offensive coordinator situation that got resolved by ron rivera hiring scott turner and i think there were there was a lot of mystery as to well um did kevin o'connell even want the job did he want to get out of washington did he want to go work for josh mcdaniels if he got a job he ended up getting a job with sean mcveigh um who else was in the running well jp did some reporting this morning and essentially wrote that this was a competition that o'connell wanted the job wanted to stay in washington uh but that scott turner just you know interviewed very well and ron rivera decided to go with uh, scott turner over kevin o'connell period i mean that's that's essentially it he did add one little twist to the story which i'll get to in a moment um The Redskins did ask, and there was some reporting around this, they did ask to interview former Giants head coach Pat Shermer, uh, but Shermer declined the interview. Um, And at that point, you know, after the interviews, Rivera decided to go with Turner. Now, one thing that J.P. threw in uh, as a guest on my radio show this morning, he said that one of the people that interviewed Scott Turner was Dan Snyder. That part of the interviewing process included a sit-down interview with Dan Snyder. Uh, Dan Snyder, I think, really wanted uh, Kevin O'Connell to be here and wanted that relationship that he, you know, began last year with Dwayne Haskins to continue. Um, I don't. When JP told me that this morning, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. I'm not. I'm just going to tell you that it doesn't sit well with me. Like I'm not sitting there going, "Oh, good, Dan. Dan interviewed Scott, and everybody's on the same page." I don't want him to be on anybody's page. I want it to be the Ron Rivera book. And every page he writes, or people he chooses, fills in all the detail, makes all the decisions. I don't want Dan. I don't want him to feel like we got to have Mr. Snyder sit down with him for his approval. I mean, that's gotten us nothing but just awful, catastrophic season after season when he's involved, even in at the, at a minimal amount. So I didn't really like to hear that. But, you know, at the same time, it could have been, for all we know, I mean, I consider, you know, maybe this context. I've known Scott since he was a kid. You know, he was here, he was a teenager, he was in high school, and you know, when Norv was here for two years, and, yeah, I want to sit down with him, see how he's doing, and, you know, see if he, you know, feels good about the organization, whatever. It could have been something like that, rather than, you know, how he, his plan for developing the quarterbacks. And maybe he asked him that, too. But I hope Ron Rivera is not relying or feeling that he's got to get, you know... Well, I don't know. Remember, who wrote this? Um, It was in the Kime story. Somebody said the best way to handle Dan is to do it your way but make him feel like it's his idea, essentially. Yes, yes. So maybe that's part of what Rivera was doing there as well.
1: If you want to try to spin it in a positive way, you could just say that, well, Rivera knew Turner a lot. He didn't want to show favoritism, so he wanted somebody else to sit in there. Now, having it be Dan... Is was probably a problem, but if you want to spin it in (laughs) a positive way, Rivera not just saying, oh, I know Turner, I don't know O'Connell, clearly I will lean towards Turner, so let's get somebody else in there to talk to him as well. It's possible. You you could spin that in a positive
0: way. Um, One other quick note uh, in terms of hirings from over the weekend. The Giants did hire Jason Garrett to be their offensive coordinator. So Jason Garrett staying in the division as an O.C. in New York, uh, working for Joe Judge and the New York Giants. All right, uh, let's finish up the show by uh, getting to all the things we haven't gotten to yet from the past weekend. Did you have a busy weekend? Don't worry, we've got you covered. It's time for Weekend DVR. All right, let's start with the caps. Um, before we get to the Alex Ovechkin uh, hat trick uh You know, for the second game in a row, their comeback win over the Islanders. If you didn't see this story, I thought it was interesting. So, um, the Islanders had a four to one lead, Aaron, at the end of the second period in their Saturday game against uh, the Caps. And on a goal uh, late in the second period by Devin Taves, which gave them that four to one lead. Taves did the Evgeny Kuznetsov, you know, flapping bird walk thing mm-hmm. that Kuz, Kuzi does after his his goals. It was sort of in a mocking way. And the Islanders' Twitter account put out the video of that goal. And after the Caps basically came back in the third period with five unanswered to win the game six to four, the Islanders' Twitter account couldn't handle all of the Criticism of them putting that video out and they deleted the tweet. See, this is we've had this conversation before a little bit various times. When you take on the um, when you decide that you're going to tweet in the middle of a game, just remember because we all do it. I do it, Aaron does it. Anybody that tweets in the middle of the game knows. That there is a chance that that tweet may not age well, so you've got to be willing to accept the, the 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 consequences of your tweet not aging well. Uh, one of my favorite responses on tweets that don't age well is that didn't age very well, did it? You got to deal with it if you're gonna end, if you're going to head into this jungle uh, that we refer to as in-game tweeting you got to be prepared to deal with the consequences, which includes getting abused in every way possible in 280 characters or less. If you don't have the stomach for this, watch the game, share your opinions with those that are in the room with you, and that's it. Your friends and family members, those that are sitting around, hey, man, look at the Islanders. They're kicking the Caps' ass. Look at him. He's doing the like. That's great. He's mocking Koozie. If you're not if you're gonna enter social media in game tweeting or Instagramming or anything else, you've got to be prepared and be okay with the consequences. I've been called out so many times for uh that didn't age very well. That tweet didn't age very well. Come on, man. Uh, you can't old, pull old, you can't pull that down. Yeah. Old takes exposed is fun. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, unless it's an old take. Look, I mean, it's, it's there are reasons. That, there there are reasons this, yes. to delete a tweet. Yes. You know, like if you're a business or a team, and somebody, sure. or you're a player that's employed by an employer that's going to be really upset. Yeah, you better right. delete it quickly. This is all in sort of the in-game, you know, jawing back and forth at each other. Yes, it's the talking trash area. And if you're not willing to accept the consequences of your trash talking coming back. And looking terrible and making you look awful and dumb, then don't tweet in-game. Don't. There are many times I sit down, I'm like, you know what? I have a real strong feeling right now that this game's about to turn in this direction, and then just as I'm finishing the tweet, something happens (laughs) and saves me. (laughs) Oh, thank God I didn't send (laughs) that one. Oh, God, that is so weak on the Islanders' part. So weak. Um, Meantime, Alex Ovechkin. My God. I mean, where do you where do you start? He's got eight goals in the last three games, eight goals in the last three games, and he passed um, he passed Lemieux. He's tied with Iserman now on that list, um, and you basically have a situation. He's two behind Messier, two behind Messier, so he needs three more to pass Messier. And you know, I, I we talked about this last week. I think I did it on the podcast
1: with Tommy. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's going to catch Gordy Howe for the number two spot. He's gonna, but in, unless there's an injury, knock on yeah. wood. If he doesn't get seriously injured and have his career cut short at this point, he's more he's he's gonna probably within two years, two and a half years, be the number two goal scorer of all time. Uh, Howe's at eight hundred and one goals and um, Gretzky's, I think, at 894, right? It's 894. So, now, Gretzky, it may take, like, four years to get to him, four and a half years to get to him. And now you're talking about a 38-year-old Ovechkin, but I think that number two is pretty safe.
1: Yeah, it's not a lock that he catches Gretzky.
0: It's not a lock that he catches Gretzky, but I think it's a lock that he catches Gordie Howe.
1: Again, barring an injury, barring something
0: weird happening. Now, what's too bad for the Caps is, you know, they get on a roll here, you know, right before their bye week and All Star break combined. Yes. And because he's not, uh, he's passing on the All Star game again, it's a one game suspension, which means he's not going to play until the 29th against Nashville at home. So he goes from eight goals in three games to now having to sit for 11 days before he plays another game. I don't know if that's good or bad. I was going to um, say, or
1: you could frame it as he gets to sit for 11
0: yeah, days. Yeah, maybe, but he's on a roll right now. And the Caps are winning their last three heading into this bye week um, and this All Star break. And the you know the Caps, it's interesting because and I've mentioned this a few times now, um, and had uh, Joe B on the show last week um, on the radio show. Yeah, we had Joe B on the radio show, right? Not this. Yes. Um, the Caps are at seventy-one points, best record in hockey. But in their division, the Penguins have sixty-seven points, and they are playing so well. Their goal differential is better than the Caps at plus 35. The Penguins are excellent right now, and the Caps still have four games over their final 33 of the regular season against Pittsburgh. So those games, more likely than not, are going to determine who ends up, if they play each other, who ends up having home ice advantage in that series. I mean, they're in a division with the Islanders. They just beat the Islanders of 61 points. Columbus has won five games in a row. They've got 60 points. You're talking about a loaded East in general with Boston. And now, if you haven't been paying attention, one of the most disappointing teams up until just a few weeks ago were the Tampa Bay Lightning. It was almost like they were still, you know, in a, a comatose after get, getting swept in the first round as the number one seed last year. In the last basically month, They've won uh, a, a 12 of 14 games. They did have a 10-game winning streak. They've been on a roll, and now they're right back where I think a lot of people thought they would be before the season. How about that for some hockey talk today? Uh, let's talk some college basketball from over the weekend. We'll start with uh, Maryland. So after the loss to Wisconsin, man, you know, and Aaron, you're sort of in this group. You're in the group of people that, you know, just doesn't think Turgeon's very good that he's not a good coach, that they can do better.
1: That 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 last part, yes. I, it's not so much that I don't think he's a good coach. I just think they can do better.
0: Okay. Well, you might be right. I mean, you could probably say that about 90, 90% of the coaching jobs in, in America, that you, can, you, you probably could do better. You know, I do think we live in a day and age now where it's not, hey um, – you get rid of him, and you're going to have the choice of a lot of people. God, so many of these really good coaches have just stayed, and they just leverage these openings for more money. It's, it's, all, it's a be careful what you wish for situation sometimes. I think Maryland, look, I don't care what anybody else says. I know what Maryland is um, from a coaching community uh, standpoint. It's a top 10 to top 15 job in America. Job. I didn't say program. Those two things are different, okay? They're exclusive of one another. The Maryland basketball job is a top 15 job. Worst case, it's probably closer to 10 than it is 15. In terms of where it is as a program, it's more like a top 20 program, top 25 program. The job, though, because of a lot of things, the tradition in history, the on-campus incredible arena, the recruiting area that you have in in D.C. and Baltimore in your backyard, the league that it's in, all of those things, when you put it all together, make it a top 10 to top 15 job. It is. You know, anybody that wants to debate me on this, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not worthy of, of a debate. You're wrong. Ask any coach in America where they would put the Maryland job if it opened up. It would be no worse than a top 15 job. Program right now, it's a top 20 to top 25 program. Is that fair, Aaron? You know, somewhere in that yeah. area? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, right now, whatever. I mean, you can debate that they're not that if you want to on the program side. That's different. They haven't been into the Sweet 16 but one time during the Mark Turgeon era. So, in many ways, that sort of defines that they're barely. A top 20 program. Um, We talked the other day. I said they'll bounce back. They're going to play games in which you think they're really good, and they're going to play some games where you think they're bad. I'll tell you one thing, and Turgeon emphasizes this, I wish he wouldn't emphasize it as much because it sounds defensive to me at times, but he's under siege right now. He's feeling it. He actually got really upset with some of the reporters on Friday before Including this game. Including
1: Don Marcus, who's the longtime reporter there. You
0: know, there. so I watched that on YouTube. Was it Don that he was upset at? I'm pretty who sure. Who was the other person? I'm they... not sure who the other one was, but I know... He I'm... barked a little bit during this presser, yeah. this, the, this informal press thing that they do the day before a game on the court at Xfinity Center. It's always a... Available on YouTube. I watch it a lot. And he was upset at some of the questions that were asked because they were sort of leading questions and negative questions. They were negative questions, but I didn't think they were out of line at all. Um I, I, I didn't. I didn't either. But you can tell that he's feeling the heat. Yep. Last week, not being able to get the ball in bounds against Wisconsin, he's feeling some heat. Okay? he, he he's feeling it. And trust me, they he's such a good dude great wife great family they feel it i've said this many times he's coached in places where it didn't matter before he got here and the the level of the level of scrutiny is not something he was used to now he's used to it now but i think he always looks at it and says my god do you know how many games we've won it's not that though we know it's not it's it's march this is a march sport you got to do better in March. Period. But anyway, I think he's a good coach. I don't think he's an elite coach. We don't need to have that conversation. Now we've had it had it twice last week. I think he's a good coach and I knew that they would be prepared on Saturday and they were. And they had a terrific first half. They had a 16-point lead. They played very good defense. He is a he's an excellent defensive coach. You know anybody that knows anything about basketball? You know, watch how well they play. You know, it, it, First of all, he's played more zone this year in the last couple of years than he ever used to. Um, so he mixes his defenses much better. But he's a really good coach of man-to-man defense. Man, do they play team defense and they communicate very, very well. And they scout exceptionally well on a defensive standpoint. This is something he is very good at. All right, you can talk about the turnovers and the not getting the ball in bounds and some of the offense that you, you think is disorganized and not right, which isn't always the case. Just so you know, but he's an excellent defensive coach, and they're always well coached defensively. And they were so good in the first half, thirty-six to twenty at halftime. And here, here was a big difference on Saturday, man. And uh, Dockich said it on the broadcast. Maybe it was Dockich or maybe it was somebody else who said it at halftime or after the game. Maryland's one of those teams where if they shoot the ball well and they will... Oh, you know where I heard it? I heard it from Matt Painter after the game. Matt Painter said after the game, the Purdue coach... The thing about Maryland is their three-point shooting percentage for the year is not reflective of how good they can be as a three-point shooting team. They've got better shooters than their percentage indicates. And he said when they shoot it, they're really difficult to beat because of how good they are defensively. And that's why Maryland, you can't bail on them. They have the potential to beat anybody. They can put it together. They've got talent. You know, I'd like to see him keep – like it, uh, when when the lead got cut to, you know, 3-5 in the second half, eventually got cut to 3 at 53-50. One of the things I kept thinking is do not hesitate on taking the open threes. They hadn't made any in the second half. I think
1: you tweeted that out at one
0: point. Yeah, but they were running good, decent offense. They were running decent offense. They were getting looks. Um, and you know, they didn't knock down the killer three there. They made a couple of big defensive stops. In particular, Sticks was outstanding on defense again. I mean a lot of times did not get the help. Turge decided not to give him the help and he, he defended um, uh, Williams and or, um, or Harms straight up. And by the way, this Trevion Williams, this six foot nine, six foot ten inch, two hundred and seventy five pounder sophomore for Purdue, star in the making. Star. Uh, And Sticks did a great job. I mean, ended up with four block shots in the game, 10 rebounds, 18 points. And he is right now, more than anybody, the guy that when he's open from three on that pick and pop, I feel best about him shooting. Yeah, Um, He was two for five from long range. And they they knocked down and Wiggins, you know, made a couple threes early off of making some threes against Wisconsin. Keep in mind about Maryland right now, okay? For all we want to say about how painful that loss was to Wisconsin and how ugly it was against Iowa. In their last six games now, they've won four of them, and they've played well in five of them. That's just – they played well at Wisconsin. You may not like 54 points. It's it's Wisconsin. You know, this is what people do against Wisconsin. I mean, it, 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 the, Michigan State beat Wisconsin last week with 67 points. Okay, but more times than not, that's the nature of the game. With these teams, all right, in the Big Ten. And the Big Ten is freaking crazy. Did we talk about this, that the bracketology that Lunardi put out the other day has 12 of the 14 Big Ten teams in the field at this point? Rutgers won again yesterday. They're in second place in the Big Ten. Rutgers is. Maryland has to play them twice. I'm going to tell you right now, they are not beating Rutgers twice. They, they, they Splitting with Rutgers, hopefully. Rutgers has talent, and they... Michael's doing a great job there. Illinois won again over the weekend, too. Right? I think they're 5-2 and two in the Big Ten. Um, they beat Northwestern. Maryland's got a big game tomorrow night. It's Northwestern on the road, and it's the one team on the road this year that people need to beat. It really is. The Big Ten is so good top to bottom, and the only bad team in the league is Northwestern, and they were really close at Illinois the other day. Really close. So... It's a game Maryland's got to go win tomorrow night. If they don't go win at Northwestern, we'll have a different conversation yeah. on Wednesday. <laughs>
1: Definitely. By the way, really quick about Rutgers. Uh, AP poll's not quite out yet, it looks like. Uh, it could be the first time Rutgers ranks since seventy eight seventy nine.
0: Wow. Yeah. Do you know um, Rutgers was in the Final Four? in 1976 okay the uh the year indiana won it was the year that rutgers i believe am i right about that hold on i think rutgers was in the final four in 1976 yes i was right about that okay good um rutgers played in the final four in 1976 they played michigan and lost in the final four Indiana beat UCLA in the other uh, Final Four game, and then Indiana completed the last perfect season, which was 1976, with a 20-point win over Michigan in the final um, that particular uh, year. On that team in 1976, on that Rutgers team in 1976, Eddie Jordan, and he averaged 14 points per game uh, for Rutgers. Eddie Jordan was on that Rutgers team uh in eddie jordan the former wizards coach if you're wondering which eddie jordan i was talking about eddie jordan the former uh wizards coach where is eddie jordan right now i think he's still living in the area um i ran into him once like last year i think it was he's such a good dude too but is he coaching anywhere anywhere uh i don't
1: think so right now last i can see yeah he was at rutgers yeah
0: no nothing Nothing right now. Um, he was an assistant. Here it is. He was an assistant in Charlotte uh, 2017 and 2018. So he's not coaching this year. Is, is, is We're sure about that? Uh, I'm not 100%,
1: but I do not see him listed. Says
0: he's retired. Yeah. Says he's currently retired. Yeah. Um, Eddie Jordan, anyway. Yeah, uh, really, really good college basketball player and played in the Final Four on that Rutgers team. Uh, after, uh, after growing up in D.C. and attending... Uh, Carroll, um, Archbishop Carroll, which was, you know, one of the all-time great high school basketball teams long before Eddie Jordan, though, played there. Uh, lastly, Georgetown lost over the weekend. Um, Marcus Howard went for 42 against him. I mean, him. Marcus Howard's just amazing. How did Maryland hold him to nothing? Uh, Th- that was one of
1: the most shocking things of the season. And yeah, Daryl Morsell was awesome.
0: Daryl Morsell was awesome that day, but seriously, to hold what did they hold him to, three points? Was it three points that day that he scored? It think, was very little. I mean, because he is the he's the nation's best scorer that I've seen. He's, you know, lead,
1: he's leading the league in scoring points per game. I believe he's is second. he
0: leading the nation in
1: scoring. Yes, yeah, he's leading the. Oh, you said league. Oh, did I say league? I meant leading. Twenty eight point
0: two points per yeah.
1: game. he's second in the odds for the uh, Wooden Award.
0: And against Maryland, Maryland held him to six points. Uh, his low by far this year. That's he was one for twelve against the Terps in that Orlando tournament um in his last his last how about this How, how about just his last uh eight games 26 points 32 points 30 29 39 27 35 and 42 he's unbelievable he's had uh a 51 point game this year had that against southern cal that was in orlando uh the day before they played maryland and he had a 40 point game against davidson also in that tournament uh this year um so anyway, Georgetown loses. Georgetown's still in good shape. That, that would have been a really good win for the Hoyas. Um, Marquette's good. Marquette's a potential tournament team. Um, big stretch for Georgetown coming up, though. They've got Xavier and Butler uh, in their next two. They still have Butler twice, I believe, uh, the Hoyas, do. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, the one other thing I was going to mention from this weekend is Cincinnati. The Bengals apparently have made it very clear that they are going to use the number one pick. They're not going to trade it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of time between now and then. If they get the right offer, they'll they'll trade it. But I just the more you think about it, can you imagine if they don't take Joe Burrow? No, it's stupid. It, they're going to take Joe Burrow. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't Unless, matter if Chase Young is evaluated at a higher level because no, it's the here's quarterback spot. The only way they spot. don't
1: take Joe Burrow if, if they t-
0: love Tua more, yes. yeah. which
1: I don't see happening. But if you tell me that that's what ends up happening, that Tua is one hundred percent healthy and people, you know, for what it, he, he tests well, he shows up at the combine, shows up everything well. Okay, maybe that's the only way.
0: Last thought on the show: Andy Reid um, has a chance to win a Super Bowl. I think his career is Hall of Fame already. Um but you know he's one of those coaches that has always sort of gotten himself, you know, remember how slow they were playing down two scores in the one Super Bowl yes. you know, so many clock management timeout management he's one he's been one of the worst at this I over mean, the years even one yesterday of the worst. we
1: talk about yeah.
0: him having clock management I mean issues. he has been one of the worst at this over the years, but God, he's a damn good football coach offensively he's creative um but also, How fortunate for him is it that he got Patrick Mahomes? Now he recognized Mahomes and traded up to take Mahomes with Alex Smith as his quarterback. You know, no one was projecting Patrick Mahomes that high. You know, at least the public wasn't. And he traded up and he took him, and Patrick Mahomes is going to, uh, is he's got a really good chance of a great quarterback delivering uh, a super bowl title to him but just think about his playoff losses in Kansas City alone they blew a 38-10 lead in the second half in a wild card game at Indianapolis lost that game 45 to 44 then they lost those games at Arrowhead you know they made a two point conversion that got called back for holding late in and an 18 to 16 loss to the Steelers they had a 21-3 lead against Tennessee and Marcus Mariota in the wild card round and then lost that game twenty-two to twenty-one, courtesy primarily of Derrick Henry, um, in that game in that second half. Um, I am, you know, I'm not one of these people that really wanted Andy Reid to get back to, back to a Super Bowl and win it, but I do like Andy Reid. He's so well liked in the profession, um, and he's a damn good coach. He really is a Hall of Fame coach, even if he loses a Super Bowl. But to get back for another chance, it took Patrick Mahomes, and that's you know, there's a. There are many ways to win in the NFL. You know, the 49ers did it with a running game in defense. The Chiefs did it with unbelievable speed at the wide receiver and playmaking spots on offense. And a great, maybe one of the most talented and gifted quarterbacks we've seen in a long, long time. There's so many ways to do it. But, man, when you have the chance on the quarterback, when you have the chance, that's still pretty much the one thing that guarantees – that you're going to have a chance if you've got an elite quarterback more than anything else. An elite defense doesn't guarantee you anything. An elite running game doesn't guarantee you anything. An elite quarterback pretty much guarantees you're going to have several swings at it in the postseason. And that's something that everybody's going to have to think about at the beginning of this 2020 April draft, especially if, there are, if there's a quarterback or two. Two-a that gets evaluated in the same way that Patrick Mahomes gets evaluated. I can't imagine any of them are going to be Patrick Mahomes. He's spectacular. I don't know that I've seen a better extend-the-play off-schedule quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. All right, that's it for today. Back tomorrow with Tommy.